So we're in the middle of this series uh, called Ezra Nehemiah. Um, very creative name uh, because we're talking about two books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so um, in this series, a couple of things we want to we discuss and we've been going through is this idea that, that Ezra and Nehemiah were two of the, the focal characters in these two books um, that have to do with the return of Israel from exile. So if you don't know the history, I'll give you a very, very short Cliff Notes version. Um, who remembers Cliff Notes? Also known as all of my books in high school, right? Um, that's all I ever did was read Cliff Notes. Um, so, so Cliff Note version of the story, uh, God's people, Israel, um, were in sin. They decided not to turn from their sin, even though God gave them plenty of warning. And so God finally said, listen, I'm going to send the Babylonians and they will uh, take care of your sin for you. So the Babylonians came in, and when the Babylonians came in, they began to pull people out of Israel. They conquered the land, and then they took all of the best people, all the, you know, all the smartest people, all the government people, all the royal people, took them all to Babylon with them. And then eventually uh, Israel kept trying to rebel, so Babylon came in and took most of the rest of the people and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, tore down the temple, tore down the walls, burned all the gates, and so after a period of time, uh, there was a prophecy by Jeremiah that said after 70 years, we'd get to return. And so after 70 years, all of a sudden, the kings of Persia, which had taken over Babylon at that time, they began to send the Israelites home. And so Cyrus, I think, was the king who did that. And, and he actually um, had come into Babylon and saw all these different people groups, all these different um, ethnicities, and he wanted to uh, kind of hedge his bets a little bit. So he sent the Israelites back to Israel and said, rebuild, rebuild your, your temple, rebuild your city, and, um, and make sure you pray to God for me. But then he also did that to some of the other people groups too and said, y'all go rebuild your religion and pray to your God for me. And so he wanted everybody praying to their gods for him. And so that's what happened. So, so last week we talked about how Zerubbabel was a prince in, in the Bible. He was in the royal line of David and he came back and he helped rebuild him and some of the priests help rebuild the temple, and that was kind of their goal was to rebuild the temple. And we talked about how we need to rebuild uh, the worship in our life, that whenever we worship God, it's not just about singing a song, that it's deeper than that, it's more powerful than that, that, that our worship is our lifestyle. Our worship is how we serve God, how we live for God, how we give Him everything that we've got. And so, so then, as that's happening, one of the things they noticed was is they get confronted um, in the middle of the building of the temple, and they stop building the temple and so that's when Ezra comes in, and Ezra is going to step into the story today. Um, and, and before we get into Ezra's part and what he did, I want to talk to you just for a second about the word culture, because that's what Ezra's really, his goal was, is to come in and reestablish the culture of Israel. See, the Israelites had been, um, had been left for dead. The ones that were there had been left for so long that they had lost sight of their lifestyle. They had lost sight of their culture. And then, and then the, the Israelites that had been taken to Babylon had, had really been immersed in Babylonian culture. And so they had kind of lost sight of who they were and their identity as a people group. And so Ezra's job was coming in to reestablish everyone's identity as Israelites, everyone's identity as God's chosen people. That was his goal. That was his purpose. And so, so I just looked up the word culture, and here's the definition of the word culture that I really liked. It says this, all the ways of life, including arts, beliefs, and institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation. Culture has been called the way of life for an entire society. I want you to think about our culture today. 
Now, we can think about our culture as Americans. We can think about our culture as Alabamians. Um, we can think about our culture in different groups of people. But I want you to think about the culture in your home today. I want you to think about the culture in your family today. I want, to th- I want you to think about the culture in your community today, in, in your group of people. You, you may say, I don't have a, a big family. Maybe you're not married today, or maybe you don't have kids. That's, that's fine. The culture is who you're around, the people that you surround yourself. Think about the culture that you've immersed yourself in today. And I want you to consider what that culture is like. You can think about the culture of church and, and, and even our church here. What is our church culture? And, and these are some things that are important to understand. Maybe in your family, the, the culture has not been a good culture, right? Maybe the culture has been this, the, the, this thing of divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage. And it's been passed down from generation to generation, this idea of divorce and remarriage. And now you're in your family and you're looking at your kids and you're thinking something needs to change. Maybe in your culture there was this culture of anger or or a culture of addiction that got passed down from generation to generation. It was this this idea of this is our lifestyle, this is our identity, this is who we are, and it keeps getting passed down from generation to generation. Maybe the culture um, has something to do with emotion or fear. Maybe you come from a people group that just everything is built on emotion or fear. So there's lots of different ways that culture can manifest itself in your life and in your family. And, and there comes a point in life when we got to make a decision. Is this the culture that's healthy for my family and for my next generation? Am I immersing myself in a friend group or in a people group today that has a healthy culture, something that I want to, to have established in my life? You teenagers are just coming back from deeper and you had a great time at deeper, I hope. Right? Yes? Yes, I'm seeing some head nods. Awesome. Deeper was this camp that they just went to. And here's the thing. While you were at camp, you were immersed in a certain culture, right? You were immersed in this culture of a bunch of people seeking God and pursuing Christ and and pursuing his presence every night or every morning at the services. But here's the thing. When you come back, you're going to step into Pinson High School, Hewitt Trustful High School. You're going to step back into Hoover or wherever it is that you go to school. And you're going to step into a different culture. And what is your life going to be like? Are you going to absorb the culture around you, or are you going to be the kind of person like Ezra that says, I'm going to reestablish a different culture wherever I go? So today we want to talk about that. And and here's the thing, your spiritual culture, whether it's in your family or in your personal life or in your school or wherever your culture is, your spiritual culture is only as strong as its foundation. And that's the truth. Whatever your foundation is, whatever you build on, right, that's as strong as you're going to be. You think about a house. A house is only as strong as its foundation. When my parents retired uh, from pastoring in Auburn and they decided to move up here, um, I went with them lots of times looking at houses. And we would look at uh, all kinds of houses, trying to find them a place to live. And I remember this one house they looked at they really, really liked. And it was a, it was a really neat house and it was a nice little property. And, and, and so they were, they were looking at the house. And one of the things, we went down into the basement of the house. And when we went down in the basement, one of the things we noticed was some cracks in the, in the paint. And we noticed some, some water you know, some looks like a little bit of water in there and, and come to find out that house had a problem that they weren't really telling anybody and it was a water leak into the foundation of the home. And if you get water in the foundation of the home, the foundation begins to shift, it begins to change, it begins to crack and the whole house is now unstable all because the foundation isn't stable. And Jesus talked about this. He, he talked about how do we build our culture? How do we build our life? In Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 24 through 27, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. 
like a person who builds his house on solid rock. In other words, anybody who follows my teaching, notice the words here he says, listens to and follows. Those are very important words. You are building your house on a rock. You are setting up your culture on a firm foundation. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the wind beats against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. I want you to notice one quick thing here, and, and this may not have anything to do with the message. I just want to throw it in. A couple of things that happens. Rain comes down, floods come up. Listen, we're going to always experience problems in life. Some problems are going to be material. They're going to be physical. It's going to be things coming from the earth, right? Things that are happening around us. Some things are going to be spiritual. You're going to face some spiritual issues in your life. Things coming down. And here's the thing. If you don't have a good foundation, your house won't stand. Here's what the Bible says. But anyone who hears my, uh, who hears my teaching and does not obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the wind beats against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. In other words, there's going to be lots of people in life that will hear the words of Christ. In other words, there's a lot of people in church today that don't have the right foundation. Just because you hear it doesn't mean anything if we don't do it, right? Just because I hear it doesn't mean anything if I don't obey it, if I don't follow the words of Christ. In Israel, whenever they come back from captivity in Ezra chapter 4, they're faced with different types of foundations that someone's wanting to set up for them, right? They're, they're faced with different kinds of foundations, and it's important for them to establish their culture on a firm foundation, and let me show you what happens to them. Here's what happens. In, in Ezra chapter 4, we read this uh, last week, uh, now when the adversaries, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, talking about Israel, heard that the, um, that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, the heads and the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to him, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. I didn't put it in the notes up here, but verse 5 goes on to say that the, the people of the land also started writing letters back to the king of Persia, trying to discredit the Israelites. So here's what happens. They're, they're, they're presented with a couple of different foundations to build their culture on by the people around them who had already established a bad culture. The first foundation they're presented with is a foundation of compromise. These people that were living in the land said, we worship God as you do. But here's the problem. They didn't. They were a mixed breed of worshipers. This group that was left in the land, it's a mix of some of the Israelites that did get left behind and some of the people that got brought in and some of the people that were already in the surrounding nations and they all begin to intermarry and they all begin to mix their religions together. And so they might would worship the God of Israel at the same time they're worshiping the God Molech or the God Baal or the God Asherah, whatever God they chose, they would mix all of their religions together. Anything and everything was accepted and it was, it was all good. Every path leads to God. And that's the kind of lifestyle that they lived. 
So when they show up on the scene and they start trying to, hey, we want to be a part of this building project, and, and Zerubbabel's like, heck, no, you can't be a part of this building project. You guys don't worship like we do. You don't have any part in what we're doing. We're trying to establish a new culture here. And these guys are stepping in, but here's what they did. They wanted to compromise. And, and listen, we live in a world today that's all about compromise. We live in a world today that's not about having a standard. It's not about having a, a, a way of living. The, the Bible calls Israel a holy people. Holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy means set apart. It, it means that they're not like everybody else. And we live in a world today that wants everybody to be just like everybody. We want guys to be just like girls and girls to be just like guys. We want, we, we want um, every religion to all take us to the same place. And it doesn't matter if you're Christian or you're Buddhist. It's all the same. It doesn't really matter because we're all mixing it all together. We get a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of Christians that all we do is now we, we, we don't preach the word of God. We give motivational speeches to make you feel good whenever you go home. Why? Because we're trying to mix all these cultures together. In the book of Revelation, um, the Bible says this in Revelation 2. This is Jesus speaking to the churches. In, in, in this one church, as he speaks to them, he says this in, in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, I know, the thing, I know all the things you do. I've seen all your hard work and your patient endurance, and I, and I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. These are the things we need to be doing. I like what he's saying here, and I was actually going to use this last week, um, but I, I didn't. I saved it for this week. Verse 4, Jesus does have a complaint. He says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other like you first did. Look how far you've fallen. In other words, he's saying, listen, you've got, if you remember last week, you've got some high watermarks in your life. You've got some areas where you used to love me even more. You used to love your brothers and sisters even more. But now you've kind of regressed in this area of love. You've kind of grown cold in your area of love for me and in your love for each other. He says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Wow, that's pretty powerful. It's not very motivational speech, right? He doesn't say, if you don't repent, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. He says, if you don't repent, I'll just take your lampstand. You're not going to be a part of these churches. You're not going to be a part of what I'm doing. But verse 6 is the part I really wanted to get into. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. And I read that last week. I was, I was going to use that as part of my sermon last week, and I didn't. Because I came across that word Nicolaitans and I thought, this is so weird. Like, who are these people? What does this have to do with anything? Why am I putting this in a sermon about Ezra, right? You're thinking the same thing I was thinking. And so as I was looking it up, here's one of the things I noticed. I noticed that, that what they think, in, in, in the historians, what they think the Nicolaitans were, is they came from a guy named Nicholas, obviously. Saint Nicholas. That's why Santa Claus is bad. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It has nothing to do with St. Nicholas. Um, it came, it might, I don't know, that's crazy, right? Um, it came from a guy named Nicholas, and Nicholas had this issue. If it's who they think it is, it was someone that was a Christian at one point, but then apparently turned away from Christianity because of popularity and because of persecution. He wanted to begin to blend cultures together. And one of the big things that the Nicolaitans did is they wanted the Christians, they said, listen, we want to be just like you. We serve the same God you serve. But listen, it's okay if you eat this food that's been um, dedicated to idols. Now, Paul talks about the food that was given to idols, and he says, if you don't know it was given to an idol, don't worry about it. If you're eating it from someone else, they give it to you. It's not that big a deal. But this guy, what these people are talking about is whenever you actually went to the temple of the idol and ate their food, 
there were certain things you had to do to get it. There were certain compromises you had to make to get the food given to an idol. There were certain standards that you had to drop in order to get the food that came from the idol. And so the Nicolaitans are very similar to these Samaritans that we're talking about in the Old Testament in Ezra's time in that they begin to blend religions together and they wanted to be more appealing and more accepting and they wanted to be less persecuted. And so they begin to blend all the religions in with Christianity. And it's so interesting to me that Jesus looks at them. He doesn't say, I hate the works of the homosexuals. I hate the works of the murderers. I hate the works of the gossips. I hate the works of the thieves. What does he say? I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Why? Because they're all about compromise. Jesus does not like compromise. He doesn't want us mixing our faith with someone else's. So you teenagers going to high school, going to junior high, not tomorrow, but on Tuesday when you go back to school... How are you going to live for God? Are you going to live for him in such a way that you're not going to compromise? You're going to be wholly set apart? Are you going to live for him in such a way that you're going to just blend into the crowd and be just like everybody else? You adults, we like to look at teenagers when it comes to that stuff, but adults are just as bad. The second foundation that that the Samaritans bring to, to Israel is this foundation of feelings. Feelings aren't bad. Emotions aren't bad. The Bible talks about God having emotions. The Bible says God rejoices over us. That means to dance and sing and jump around. The Bible says that God is angry at times. The Bible says that God is jealous at times. There there are different emotions associated with God. But here's the thing about God. God is never ruled by his emotions and neither should you be. His foundation is not built on emotions. But one of the things I notice is whenever these Samaritans, uh, it says whenever they, were, whenever they were not allowed to build the temple, in verse 4 it says the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Here's what they want to do. They wanted them to build their foundation on fear and on emotion. If your foundation is built on emotion, it's shifting sand because your emotions change all the time. Don't raise your hand in here because you may know someone like this. And, and if, you're, um, if you're a lady that's pregnant and your hormones are crazy, so Erica watching online, um, sometimes Jake could probably attest to this. Erica, he's raising his hand right now. You can't see it, but I can see it. Um, and, and so sometimes when those emotions get up and, and, and there's this, there's this uh, video Jonathan and I were watching the other day and it made me laugh. It was for the marriage night. I think we're going to show it next week. And this guy walks into a room and his wife is sitting there just crying. And he says, what's wrong? He's like, nothing. He said, you're just crying just because again? She's like, yes. You know, sometimes our emotions can get the better of us, right? They can, they can make us do things. And, and, and here's, the, here's the problem with, with building your life on emotion, building your life on feelings. When I build my culture based on feelings, and listen, some of you know parents. You know parents. You know parents that built their whole culture in the home on anger. It was all about emotion. It was all about feelings, and that anger would spike for no reason. They built, they built everything on, you hurt my feelings, and, and I'm going to hurt your feelings, and, and it's all about guilt and shaming each other. Why? Because everything is built on feelings, and we can't have that. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart, which is where feelings and emotion comes from, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah says we've got a problem if we're building our life, we're building our culture based on our feelings and our emotions. 
we have to establish a firm foundation. Here's the other thing that happens is if you don't cave, if you don't cave to the world culture, if you don't cave to accepting everything and everybody, even sin, if you don't cave to everything's about emotion, and all you got to do is uh, one of the things that that um, someone pointed out to me one time, I think, I think Andrew pointed this out to me one time, is if you watch um, during elections, if you watch the news during elections, very rarely will people promote facts. They always promote feelings. Because if I can get you on your feelings, I can sway you to do whatever I want you to do. But if I give you facts, facts just don't lie, right? Facts are what they are. But if I can get you on your feelings, if I can get you emotional... That's why if you ever watch a, uh, a football game and, and you're, you're watching some of these guys, they will, um, football players a lot of times will get in each other's faces and they'll yell at each other and they'll cuss at each other and they'll shove each other and they'll push each other. And, and one guy knows what he's doing. He's not really mad. He's trying to get the other guy mad so that the other guy is distracted by his emotions and his feelings. So here's what the world does. If the world can't get you to build your culture around accepting everything and blending cultures, if the world can't get you to, 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 to live by your feelings, then they'll just cancel you out. And we see that happening a lot in Christianity today in our country as we get canceled. With the, with the current way that, that society's going, we'll just cancel you out. You just have no part in what we do. And that's what they try to do to Israel. But Ezra comes in and Ezra says we're going to do things a little bit differently. And this is the part I want you to take notes on today, especially if you need to reestablish some culture in your home. If you need to reestablish some culture in your school, you need to reestablish some culture at your workplace. Here's a couple of quick things that Ezra did that I think are important for us to do. Number one, Ezra did this. He established God's word as the foundation, not feelings, not culture. I mean, not, um, you know, compromise. He established God's word as a foundation. In Ezra chapter 7, Ezra's showing up on the scene for the first time in verses 9 and 10. These are really good verses. I'm just going to read the last part of verse 9. It says, for the good hand of his God was on him. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. First of all, it says he set his heart. In other words, he said right off the bat, I'm not going to get deceived by my feelings my emotions, or my desires, I'm going to set my heart on something, and it's got to be on God's Word. I can't set my heart on compromising with everybody else, what everybody else wants me to do, what everybody else thinks is right. i got to set my heart on what I know is right, the truth of God's Word. And, the, and then it, it, the couple of things he does that I think is so cool is, number one, he sets his heart to study God's Word. Can I encourage you with something today? Don't let this be the only time you study God's Word. Don't let me be the only person that studies God's word for you. Something I appreciate about, uh, about some of our people here in the church is, is here lately. We've been talking about reading their Bibles and stuff like that. And, and I have people coming up to me. Eric and Jill all the time are saying, um, listen, what I found in this commentary. This is what I found in this video. And this is what I'm studying right now in God's word. And, and, and I love the fact that people keep coming up to me telling me what they're studying. Not just what they're reading, but what they're researching. It's important for you to have a culture in your home that's established on studying God's Word. If you need help with studying God's Word, by all means, come find me. Um, I can help you. I can show you websites and commentaries and all kinds of stuff to help you understand what it is you're reading. But don't just read God's Word and, and let it just go by page after page after page and you not know what God's trying to say to you. Study it. 
Why do I study it? I study it because when I study it, that's how God speaks to me. Sophia is upstairs this morning with the kids. And, and if you don't know Sophia Contreras, she leads our kids ministry. And, and one of the things she told me the other day in staff meeting is, is she said, for this year, the one thing I really want to establish in the kids is a love for God's word. She said, I want to help the kids read their Bibles. And so that's a goal from, from the little kids all the way to the adults this year is to study God's word. But the next thing is this. He didn't just set his heart on studying God's word. He set his heart on doing God's word, living it out. Anybody can study. Anybody can be a scholar. But it doesn't help you if you don't live it out. Right? We got to live it out. That's one of the things I, I, I always think is crazy to me whenever, um, whenever you see someone, and you, you may be this person, I'm sorry if I, I'm about to offend you, I'm not really trying to, but if, you know, you see doctors sometimes, and doctors will get up there and they'll tell you all the things about health and what you need to do to be healthy and what you need to eat and what you need to drink and, and what you don't need to be putting in your body, and then you go to the doctor's office, because nowadays you're not allowed to go in the front of a doctor's office, you've got to go around back to the dumpster, and so you go around back to the dumpster to get in the doctor's office, and what do you see? You see the doctors or nurses back there smoking. It's like, whoa, 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 you just told us not to do this because it's bad for our health, but you're back here doing it. It doesn't matter how much you know, it matters how much you live, right? It's what I do that matters, not what I know that matters. And so I want to study God's Word, and then I want to live out God's Word. And then the last thing he did was teach God's Word. Listen, some of you guys are going to have marriage night, and some of you men in here, you're wondering, how can I be a good spiritual husband and good spiritual leader and good spiritual father in my home? Teach God's Word. Yeah, but I don't know God's Word. Study God's Word. Live God's Word. Tell your kids about God's Word. You don't have to know much. But what you know, you give out. Peter and John, someone asked Peter and John one time, they said, hey, will you give us some money? And they said, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we'll give you. Right? And then they prayed for the God to be healed. You don't have to know a lot, but what you do have, give to the people around you. Teach God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this is a huge verse. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and the discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want you to look real quick. It says, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. The soul is our mind, our will, our emotions. The spirit is what God puts inside of us that's true. And listen, whenever we don't know is it me thinking this, or is it, is it my emotions thinking this, or is this God speaking to me? I take everything through the filter of God's word. I allow the sword of God's word to divide my feelings versus his spirit. And it's important for us to allow God's word to work in our life. The second thing that, that Ezra did is he humbled himself. He established this culture of A, pursuing the word of God, building life on God's word, not building my life on what people say, not building my life on what Facebook says, not building my life on what CNN says, but building my life on God's word first. And then second of all, learning to be a humble person. Listen, we could all use humility. You never go wrong with humility. You never go wrong with humility. You will always go wrong with pride. At some point, pride's going to bite you. But humility will never bite you in the end. And in Ezra chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, it says this. I just want you to see a couple of areas of humility. It's a bunch of names. Man, I hate it when I read all these names. <laughs> then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel. Oh, okay, these aren't bad. 
Shemaiah, Eth Nathan, El Nathan, what? Jerob, El Nathan again. El Nathan was a popular dude back in those days. Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorah, and El Nathan again. Golly, three El Nathans who were men of insight. And then I sent them to Ido. We talked about Ido last week. We like Ido. Ido, the leading man at the, pal- uh, at the place um, Casiphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Casiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God um, on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen. That was a lot of names. That was a lot of names for me to say one thing, right? One thing. I should have just skipped to the end. But here's what Ezra did. Ezra called in help. Ezra called in help. Ezra is an expert on the law. He is a scribe. He's not a priest. He's a scribe. He's an expert teacher of the law. And even the expert says, I can't do this by myself. I got to get some people in here to help me. And so he starts calling in all the El Nathans. He gets every El Nathan he can find to show up on the scene and help him out. He's like, if your name is El Nathan, I need you today. And I want you to go talk to Ido and come back to me because we like Ido. And here's the thing it says. It says that Ido sent him a man of discretion. That word discretion means insight, wisdom, and understanding. You know what we all need sometimes in life? Not sometimes, all the time, we need somebody in our life that's going to give us wisdom, insight, and understanding. We cannot do it by ourselves. I cannot pastor this church by myself. And you know what else? I cannot, this is going to sound super creepy, I cannot parent my kids by myself. I cannot be a good husband to my wife by myself. Now, we're not getting another husband in the house. They sit in sister husbands or whatever it is, Right? <laughs> that's what it would be if you had never mind um sometimes i'm so sorry if you're a visitor today i'm so sorry i know i'm stupid um but i think of these funny jokes in my head and i know i can't say them all um but but here's the thing i've got to have people in my life to give me wisdom insight and understanding even for me to be able to be able to be a good husband to my wife if i think for one second that i can come up with every great way to be a husband, I'm going to fail miserably. If I think for one second that I can be a great father all by myself, I'm going to fail miserably. If I think that I can be a good pastor to you guys by myself, I'll fail. And the same is true for you. We all need people in our life that will come help us. We all need an L. Nathan, right? We all need them. There's at least three of them out there. Go grab one. We're about to have, I think, after service today, if, if the blizzard of 2022 hasn't just totally blown our church away and we don't have a winter wonderland outside, um, we're supposed to be having a small group meeting after service today. Bobby's going to be leading us in a small group meeting. Listen, we all need small groups. We all need mentors. We all need friends that will help us get through. And you don't have to have a special curriculum to have a small group. You don't have to be in, in, in the best thing. You know what a great small group is? Is you sitting down with a couple of people saying, hey... Here's the areas of help that I need in my life. It's humiliating. But humiliating is what makes us humble, right? Sometimes it's humiliating to say, I've got a problem, I've got an issue, but it's necessary to be able to do that. And Ezra was an expert, and he still called in help. The next thing that says in verse 21, it says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Havah, 
and um, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek him for a safe journey and ourselves and our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed. I love this. This is such a cool little part in the scripture that doesn't have anything to do with the message necessarily, but I just think it's really cool. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had already told the king, the hand of our God is good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Um, real quick on that little side note, Ezra had already told the king, apparently the king had offered to send a band of soldiers with him to protect him. And Ezra was like full man of faith and power. And he jumps up and he was like, we don't need your soldiers. We have God and God will protect us and he will kill all of our enemies. And then Ezra gets into the, gets into the trip and he's like, oh man, I back myself up into a corner now. Right? Like he starts looking around at all the enemies. He's like, we are in trouble, guys. We should, have, we should have taken the king up on his offer. There's a whole bunch of bad guys out there. And we told the king we didn't need any bad guys. But he's backed himself up into this corner of faith. And now the only thing he can do is pray. Listen, there's some areas in your life and in my life today we need to learn how to back ourselves up into a corner of faith to say, you know what? I don't need this. And I don't need that. You know what I need? I need Jesus. I need Jesus every day. I need the way maker like Perry talked about today. I may not see a way, but I'm going to go with God and I'm going to allow God to provide a way for me. And that's what, that's what Ezra did. He said, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to fast. And he got all his buddies to fast with him. That's another great thing about a small group. Get you a group of people that will fast with you. But he called for a fast. And, and the fast there was to humble themselves. The fast there should cost us something, right? Our, our fast should be something that puts our mind and our desires and our emotions in check. So some people are going to argue with you and they're going to say, only thing you can fast is food. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I, I don't necessarily buy into that. I think you can fast anything that puts your mind, your emotions, and your desires in check. Because for some people, fasting food is just a diet. Whereas if you tell them to turn off the TV, they're going to die. Right? Right? And so they need to turn off the TV. For some people, if you told them to get off of social media because their life is so full of emotion and desire and all they can see is what's on social media and they can see the perfection of other people's lives and they can't figure out how they can't get it. And if you said, you need to fast social media and I'll fast it with you, but we got to get your head back on straight, that would be a bigger fast than telling them they can only eat vegetables three meals a day. So I think there's some areas of fasting that fasting humbles us, but it puts us in a place of check where God can speak to us. The third and final thing that Ezra did, and I'll stop talking after this. So, so the first thing Ezra does, right, the first thing he does is he, he gives himself over to the foundation of the word of God, right, sets his heart on God's word. And then the next thing he does is he finds a place of humility by asking for help and by fasting. And the third thing he does is he confronts compromise. He ruthlessly confronts compromise. What I'm about to read to you is probably one of the toughest places in the Bible, um, stories in the Bible, in my opinion. And I'm going to go ahead and preface this by saying the results of what happens in this story is not, the Bible never says God tells the people to do what I'm going to tell you happens. It's just what the people did. So I'm not going to ask you to do this, but you'll understand in just a second. It's, It's just kind of important. So in Ezra chapter 9, the stupid water gets in my way. 
In Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. After these things had been done, the officials approached me. This is Ezra speaking. I think Ezra wrote this book. The officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land. And in its faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. In other words, what happens is they show up to Ezra and they say, listen, man, I know you're trying to reestablish a culture. I know you're trying to do some good things, but here's a problem. We're going to go ahead and let you in on. The problem is we have all mixed races with the people around us. Like we keep intermarrying with people that, that have different religions and different cultures, and we keep diving over into their religions. It says not only have we done it, we've given our kids over to it. It's been a generational thing, and you need to understand something. Back whenever I read Ezra chapter 4, and the people of the land wanted to mix with Israel, and it seems like they weren't going to do it, this is like 60 years later. This is years later. They've done it. They compromised. They gave in. They didn't allow their culture to be holy and set apart. They gave in. And then he says, and not only that, but our leadership were the worst ones. The leadership were the first, first ones to cave. And when the leadership caves, the rest of the, the, rest of the group caves. Today in your life, maybe throughout the course of this message, the Spirit of God is going to speak to our hearts. I believe He does all the time. And He may be showing you some areas in your life where you've compromised. He may be showing you some areas in your life where you haven't allowed your culture, your lifestyle, who you are, your identity. You haven't allowed your identity to be set apart. That if I were to look at you and I were to look at the rest of the world, I wouldn't see any difference whatsoever. And maybe you're being confronted with that today. Maybe that's being drug up today. The Bible says that the, that the Spirit of God searches our hearts. So maybe today there's some areas where you're going to find compromise in your life or in your family. And I want to just tell you, I, I walked back through kids this morning. And I saw the kids playing in the nursery. And I went upstairs and I saw kids coming in. And, and every so often I like to walk back there and and, uh, and see all the, the next generation that's coming up. And I thought about this message. And I thought about the culture that we're establishing for them. Are we establishing a, establishing a culture of compromise? Are we establishing a culture where you come to church just to hang out and see your buddies? Or are we establishing a culture where you come to church to be changed? Are we establishing a culture where we go home and we're set apart? We're different. We're not going to be just like everybody else. Our goal is to be like Christ. Not like the world. I want you to listen to Ezra's response. As soon as I heard this, this is extreme. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and from my beard and sat appalled. We don't use the word appalled very often. He sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me 
while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifices. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread my hands out to the Lord my God. The rest of chapter 9 is a great, great thing for you to read. It's just a prayer that Ezra prays for his nation, for his people, for his friends, for his family. And he just begins to go to God. And he doesn't go to God pridefully because he already humbled himself. But he goes to God saying, God, forgive us. Forgive us for what we've done. I want to repent. Even though I didn't do it, I'm repenting for all of us. I'm repenting for America. I'm repenting for Alabama. I'm repenting for Trustful. I'm repenting for my family, for the right family. I'm repenting for myself. And he just goes to God and lays it all out on the line and gives God everything and, 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 and comes to God with his humble heart. But let me tell you the part that stood out to me the most was that he was appalled by compromise. When was the last time we were appalled by sin? This is hitting me a little bit today because I think about things that next week we're going to talk about the gates and the walls and what we allow into our house and, and what we allow into our mind and into our heart. And I think about some of the things that I've allowed into my life and I wasn't appalled anymore. There was a time I used to be appalled. There was a time I used to be appalled. There was a time I used to hate. There was a time I used to just think, man, this is terrible. There's no way I can let this into my home. There's no way I can let this into my family. There's no way I can let this into my mind. But today, do we make excuses and compromise a little bit? Well, this is just how culture is now, God. You don't understand what our life is like. We're just bombarded constantly with this stuff. So if a little gets in, it's okay. He was appalled. He tore his clothes, pulled out his own hair. And then in chapter 10, this is the last part, and this is where we're going to stop. In chapter 10, I'm not going to read all this, but there was extreme confrontation and the bible says that the people showed up and they see ezra like going nuts ripping his clothes and pulling out his hair and laying on the ground and praying to god and seeking god they see ezra doing that and their hearts are stirred and the bible doesn't say god told them to do this they just showed up on the scene and they said listen man here's what we're going to do we also are appalled, and we can't believe what we've done. We have really screwed up. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to send our wives and kids back to their families. They had a mass divorce. Now that wasn't God. It doesn't say that it was God. God didn't tell them to do that. And I'm not saying to you, it, we're about to do marriage night. I'm not saying if you got, you know, your, your spouse sitting serving God, you should just divorce them. I'm not telling you to do that. What I am saying is this, I just want you to get the concept here of how extreme they confronted compromise, how extreme their confrontation was. And here's what I'm going to ask you today. How extreme are you going to confront sin or compromise or, or, or building your culture on your feelings? How extreme are you going to confront that? Are we going to just pat it on the behind and let it just kind of walk on through our house? Or are we going to do something about it? Why don't you stand up with me today? When Perry and I, we hadn't lived in our house too, too long, and 